Thank you for listening to the Christ the King Church podcast. We exist to help people know, love, and obey Jesus as Lord over all of life. For more information about our church, please visit us at ctksensi.com. Good morning. Uh, If you could turn to Luke chapter 4, we'll be in verse 31 is where we'll start. Um, I went to middle school in a town called Springfield, about an hour and a half northeast of here. And um, I had this principal there. I moved around a lot as a kid. And this is the only principal I think I remember. He was like you, Scott. Um, He played for the Detroit Lions. And uh, I remember being in an assembly and a kid dropped something. And he said, you're going to want to pick that up, son. And I remember sitting there thinking, oh my gosh, did I drop anything? Because if so, I need to pick it up now. There was something in this man's uh, face and in his voice and in his eyes that rang with authority. He was somebody not to be trifled with. And I, I think if I had ever, I was a smart mouth kid, and I think if I had ever gotten into a situation where somebody was, was threatening me or was going to beat me up in the halls, I would want Mr. Larry Nichols to show up because he would put a stop to it with just looking at the kid. He would, he would end the situation just by his sheer presence. And there is something beautifully Christ-like about that. And that's what shows up here in Luke chapter 4, verse 31. Jesus has a spine of steel and authority that goes a mile beneath the bedrock. And it intimidates this demon. It, it elicits fear from this demon like good authority always does. So let's read it, and then let's unpack it as best we can. And he, Jesus, went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee. And as he was teaching them on the Sabbath, they were astonished at his teaching, for his words possessed authority. We're going to see that in a moment, but right there, his words possessed authority. And in the synagogue, there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. The Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, what is this word? For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits and they come out. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. So we're going to look at a couple of things. First, the demon. So let's start with him, with it, because obviously it's the, it's the most uh, stark thing in this passage. You see Jesus' authority throughout the Gospel of Luke, but here it's, it's pointed at this unclean creature. And I'll start with a caveat that I probably wouldn't have had to make in 150 years ago. These things exist. They exist. They are real spiritual beings with minds and hearts that are warped. They are actually there. And if you look in verse 36, you see that the people in Jesus' day are not surprised at their existence. Nobody goes, wow, 
Demons are real. Who knew? They're surprised that Jesus can exercise them with speech, but they're not surprised that they exist. These things are real. Our day and place contains what I call materialist assumptions. In other words, that, um, that there are only material things, things made of matter, and that everything that's spiritual that we would talk about in this place or read in this book, that's in the realm of ideas and philosophy, but it doesn't have any bearing on the real world. And that is not the way the Bible views the world. We live in a world of both matter and spirit, angels and you and I, demons and WD-40. There, there are both material things and spiritual things, and they interact, they overlap, they touch, they intersect. Some of these assumptions have even snuck into my mind. So I was listening to um, a, a guy named Walter Martin earlier this week because he's written a lot about the occult and demonic activity, and I just wanted to hear uh, somebody from a prior generation who had had some, some real experience in this world that I haven't had, at least I don't think so. And as he was telling this story of an exorcism that he had been a part of, this is not a, a Roman Catholic guy, this is a normal Bible-believing Protestant Christian, but he described a demon that had been uh, indwelling a, a girl, the daughter of missionaries, who had been on the mission field and had interacted with evil spirits and had never truly believed in the Lord and, and had been inhabited by this demon. And as he was telling this story, I started to get embarrassed for him while driving home from work. And, and I realized as that happened, as, that, as I had that, that initial emotional, visceral reaction of embarrassment for this guy, I realized that more than I might have thought, some of the assumptions about the spiritual world that our, our secular counterparts out there believe have gotten into my own mind to where I, I, I'm uncomfortable sometimes thinking about the demonic. Um, I wasn't, I wasn't going to say this, but I... I think I should. My wife, when we had one child, um, before we had 37, <laughs> they won't be here today, so the back, like, eight rows at the 11 will be open. Um, she, we were living in an apartment, a two-bedroom apartment, and Ellie slept in a room with a crib by herself, and um, Sarah said that she walked in there one night, I think just to check on her, and saw in some way, um, a shadowy sort of figure. And I think if you were to ask her today, she probably would say, I, I don't know if I literally saw it with these two eyes, but I saw something in some way. And so she prayed over Ellie. And it's, it's interesting that that was her first reaction. Her first reaction was not to come get me. Her first reaction was not to call the police. Her first reaction was not to reach for the phone. Her first reaction was to pray. And that's never happened again, ever. And I think that that's real. I think what I just described to you actually happened. And I think it means something. And it should mean something more to me than it has in my last 35 years on this earth or 37 years on this earth. When I read this passage and I see that these beings actually exist and they actually hate us and human beings in general. And they actually hate the church and the kingdom of God. They hate Lord's Supper. They hate prayer. They hate our worship. They're real. It should give me a little more of a sense of dependence on Christ um, and of asking his protection which a couple of people prayed uh, for me this week, and none of them had talked to each other, but I had a couple of people say, in one form or another, I'm praying for you because you're preaching about the demonic. 
It's interesting. I've never had anybody else say they were praying for me about a sermon topic before. So, these are real. All right, let's, let's talk about its nature. What are these things? The word is daimonion. That's where we get the English word demon. It's in the New Testament about 63 times, mostly in the Gospels. These things are created spiritual beings. The word pneuma, the word spirit, is right there in this passage. These are spiritual beings that are in conscious, active opposition to God. So they have personhood. This is not um, just Jesus accommodating this guy's schizophrenia. Like, well, I know these people don't have the DSM-4 yet, and they can't go to a psychologist and get diagnoses. So I'll, I'll just I'll play along here, and I'll act like this, this guy really has a demon when I know it's bipolar disorder. No, this is an actual person who is inhabiting this man's skin with him. These are conscious, active beings. We're not dealing with, I, I've always been comfortable talking about the demonic. I've never had a problem talking about demonic philosophies or demonic attitudes in the 21st century. I think they're all over the place. I think there's one that is a black cloud over a building not far from here called Planned Parenthood. The demonic is real, but I have noticed I have been uncomfortable talking about demons, not some impersonal force out there that is violent and opposed to God, but actual beings, actual personalities. This is a demon. For all I know, it has a name. Michael had a name, and he's an angel. Gabriel has a name, and he's an angel. They are persons. Um, Secondly, it's nature. They are not uncreated. They are made. They are uh, angels that are in rebellion against their author. I'm going to show you this from 2 Peter 2 and from Jude 1.6. These two books of the Bible have a lot in common. And both of them mention a moment that must have happened, by my best guess, after the six days of creation, but before Genesis 3 when the serpent lies to Eve. At some point in between those two moments, there was a rebellion in heaven That's described in Revelation 12 with a little more detail. There was a rebellion and some angels, maybe a third like Revelation says, some angels rebelled against God and became what is now inside this man. So 1 Peter 2 verse 4 says this, describes it this way. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, so here's the thing that's inside this man, he sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until judgment. And then in Jude, verse 6. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he, God, has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. So these are, these are angels that rebelled against God. They are not uncreated. They're created like you and I. Also, they are powerful. They are more powerful than us, intrinsically. Not those of us who have Christ in us, not more powerful than Christ in us, but powerful than a, more powerful than a regular human being. There's actually a really... Um, I think it's kind of funny, a story in Acts chapter 19. Some of you may be real familiar with it. I'm just going to read it to you quickly. It's only about eight verses. Um, The sons of Sceva is probably the heading over the chapter in your Bible. And if you know this story, you might already be laughing a little bit. 
Uh, Acts chapter 19, beginning in verse 11, Luke, the same author who wrote this gospel, tells us this story. God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that touched Paul's skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and evil spirits came out of them. So here's Christ in the apostle Paul, so powerful that these unclean spirits split, they they take off and run at the touch of a garment that Paul wore because of Christ in him. But then in verse 13, then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits. So we're going to imitate Paul for some coin. I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize. But who are you? Seven grown men. This demon says, I know the, the bald tent maker you're talking about, and he does scare me. His handkerchiefs scare me. But I don't know who you are. And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. I love that phrase, naked and wounded. Copyright that for an album name if I ever record again. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jew and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. So the evil spirit inside a man in Acts chapter um, in Acts chapter 19 was not intimidated by seven grown men, but he was intimidated by the name Jesus Christ. So mere human beings are not enough to scare demons. They are powerful. More powerful enough that they can make a man overpower seven other grown men. In terms of power and command, these things outweigh human beings, which is why I believe, and I'm not alone in this, I believe that they have been worshipped before, that these demons have been worshipped. I'm reading... Um, I'm reading Paradise Lost by John Milton. I don't know if anybody's ever heard of that. Um, I shouldn't do that because I said that to Michael and they made a joke like I was making fun of him for not knowing what Paradise Lost is. So if you, if you find that offensive, I apologize. I did not know much about it until I found a copy down in my basement, picked it up, and started reading it. And it's got a very intriguing take on the universe pre-fall. And, and I don't know that John Milton, who's a Puritan, actually believed this literally happened, but it's an interesting idea. The gods of the Old Testament, the, the false gods in Canaan, are, de are demons. They are actual personal beings, and they converse with Satan about how to best war against heaven. And so you have Baal, and you have Beelzebub, and you have even Mammon, so which is a, a lust for, for money. And these, these demons converse with each other about how to attack heaven. And I do think that at least some of the Old Testament deities were demons, they should not be worshipped, but I think there's good reason when you read the Old Testament to see that there is something behind some of these statues. For instance, the burning of children alive, right, which I believe Molech commanded, or, or they did in worship to Molech. That seems unlikely to me to be something that people would come up with on their own. Hey, we made a statue with our own hands, and we set it up, and we started looking at it, and we started worshipping it, and let's burn our babies, doesn't that, doesn't that have the flavor of hell to it? 
So you see this, I believe, in 1 Corinthians, in the New Testament. This isn't just my own thinking here. 1 Corinthians, Paul says this in chapter 10. What do I, he's talking to the church in Corinth, what do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? So taken by itself, verse 19 there, you might think, see, idols are just idols, period. They're just statues. That's it. Verse 20, no, I imply that what pagans sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. So not, it's just a statue. Who cares? Right? You eat food sacrificed to idols, so what? You know the idols just rock. No. I do not want you to participate in the worship of demons. Daimonion. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord, verse 21, and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. However uncomfortable I am with it, the reality is there are spiritual persons who hate God and who are, I believe to this day, still worshiped in some capacity. All right, it's status. So that's its nature. That's its nature. It's status. It's two things. First, it's unclean. The people say this in verse 36, and Jesus, or Luke says it in verse 33. This thing is unclean. I don't know whether all demons are, descri- are unclean in this sense, but in some sense, at least this one is particularly unclean. It is unholy. It is out of step with God's wisdom and his beauty. In the Old Testament, you see the word unclean and you see the word clean, and they always have, when they're, when they're used in this way, they always have a sort of moral connotation to them. So even diseases in Leviticus and in Numbers and in Deuteronomy, you can see diseases which are a result of the fall. They are a result of sin. No one would have had leprosy if Genesis 3 had not happened. You see these people are told to do things in order to be clean again, spiritually clean, clean as they are in step with God's, the way that he has ordered the world. Um, In the Psalms, you see the psalmists, including David, asking for clean hands. They're not talking about Purell. They're talking about having clean conduct, morally and spiritually clean behaviors and actions, and clean hearts. Um, In the book of Acts, in the book of Acts, you'll see all food pronounced clean as Peter sees a vision of foods that are supposedly unclean being dropped from heaven. And then Jesus doesn't just leave it at the foods. He sends Peter to the house of a Roman centurion who is then saved and brought into the kingdom of God. And so it's not just foods that are now, all foods that are now clean in the new covenant. It's even these unbelieving Gentiles that are spiritually, can be made spiritually clean. This thing, however, is unclean. And there's no passage in the Bible that talks about them being made clean. These things are corrupt. They are morally corrupt and filthy and degraded all the way down. And they will not be redeemed. It's also comforting to me to see uncleanness react this way in the face of Jesus. If you have not, I'm reading uh, the Chronicles of Narnia to my kids for the second time through, and if you have kids and you have not read those books, I can't commend them to you enough. And the, the main reason, the main reason is the Christ figure in it, the character of Aslan, is so clean. And everything that is wicked Everything that is detestable, everything that is hateful, everything that is violent, everything that is evil, it, it recoils at his presence. And there's something so comforting 
To anybody who loves God, anybody who has been made new in Christ, there's something so comforting about that, about knowing you all, I'm sure, have been near someone who loves pain and violence and inflicting wounds on people. The idea that knowing that if those sins do not get repented of, that uncleanness and that unclean person will answer for it to a God who does not accommodate evil is comforting. You see that in the Psalms. You see it in the Psalms over and over again where David or other psalmists are comforted by the idea that God will deal with uncleanness and seeing this demon who has been, for all I know, tormenting this man for years and I have no doubt loving every minute of it, every nightmare it gave him, every lie it whispered to him, loving his pain the way you or I love Coke just loving, inflicting this kind of spiritual and emotional turmoil on this human being. To see this thing get in the presence of my Savior and freak out is incredibly comforting. So, it's unclean. It's also under judgment, which is also comforting in its own way. Hasn't happened yet. The the judgment has not happened yet, but the being under it is right now already true. In Matthew chapter 8, verses 28 through 29, there's two men who are inhabited with demons in a cemetery. And this happens. When Jesus came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men, or two men in whom demons dwelt, coming out of the tombs so fierce that no one could pass away, and behold, they cried out. Here it is again. Them crying out, uncleanness, not being able to just, just stare at Jesus. It freaks out. It verbally explodes. What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? They know that they are under judgment. These these demons, they're sort of like, um, I heard this story of there were a few Japanese holdouts after World War II who up until like the early 70s were hiding in jungles and in caves and either did not know that the war had ended 30 years prior, or had just been told that they were never to give up by their emperor, who was a a deity. They believed in Japan that the emperor was a a god of sorts. And so for 30 years, three or four of these soldiers held out on uh, one in an island in the Philippines, another on Guam. And finally, when they were taken back in, it's like they they were in agony that their side had lost the war and that they had not been able to to die for their emperor, for their God. When I read these stories of these demons, that the war is already lost, the war is already over, but they are holding out until the day of judgment, that's sort of what it reminds me of. These things are not, um, they're not hoping that they win. They know the day of torment is coming. All right, so that's that's its status. It's clean and it's under judgment. Let's look at its opposition to God. This thing is opposed to God. It's not under any delusion that it can win, um, that's, that's evident in verse 34, the very first thing that pops out of its mouth. The ESV translates it, that as ha, but you'll probably see a footnote, and down at the bottom it says, if you have the ESV, leave us alone. That word is only in this passage in the New Testament. It's ea, and two dictionaries I looked at. One defined it at, as let us alone, and another as an interjection of indignation or of wonder mixed with fear. So this is the sound that my son makes when he sees me coming in the room unexpectedly, and he's right mid-slap. And he goes, oh my God, like, he knows. It's over. The time of torment has come. 
And it has. It's that kind of a sound that this demon erupts in um, because it is opposed to the one that it now sees. We live in a world that is saturated with the spiritual, and much of that spiritual hates Jesus Christ, hates Yahweh, hates our God. This is not this, this spiritual warfare that we're, the curtain is being pulled back and we're seeing a little bit of. This spiritual warfare is not like World War II, where it's the allies and the axis and it's close, but we know the allies, the good guys are going to win because that's the way the story goes. This is a rebellion. This is an insurrection. This is not a war among more or less equals. This thing is opposed to God as a traitor. It's opposed to God as a rebel. So what is it opposed to? The first thing it's opposed to is in verse 31 and 32. Jesus went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. This thing did not interrupt Christ's works of mercy. I'm sure it hates Christ's works of mercy. I'm sure that hell would hate it if I started uh, an indiscriminate, vague soup kitchen. But it would not invite demonic attack the way Christ's teaching did. Because that's what hell hates most, the good news, the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel. Uh, In verses 42 through 43 of this same chapter, when it was day, Jesus departed and went into a desolate place, and the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. Jesus did heal. Jesus did feed. Jesus did remove blindness. Jesus did raise people from the dead. But the demons in hell were not trying to interrupt those services. They did interrupt or try to his teaching, his preaching of the gospel, which Jesus says is why he came. The gates of hell hate the Christian message. That's the first thing they opposed or it opposed. The second is human beings. It afflicts, it damages human beings. Demons are doing this all throughout Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and the book of Acts. These beings are not agents of climate change. We don't see them attacking the mere earth or elements in general. They know the value of a human being. It's interesting for me to think about Mary Magdalene, who had seven of these things. She had a nest of these things inside her. And Mary Magdalene, a Pharisee, Jesus says, would not... He would treat his ox or his sheep with more care and more reverence than this woman. They would overlook her. She's nothing to them. She's an unclean woman. She's clearly got demonic activity in her. We we want nothing to do with her. She's untouchable. But hell knew her significance, so much so that it dispatched seven demons to inhabit her. Hell knows the value of human beings. Hell knows the value of human beings. They know the significance of every one of our kids, every one of our neighbors, every human being in this room. The people I work with. I taught at a school. My first job when we had kids was um, in the public school system. I taught uh, 7th and 8th grade language arts. And I didn't know until like halfway through the year that a lot of the teachers had subscribed to this particular cult. I had never even heard of it. Um, And I loved some of those teachers. There was a a guy in particular who was like an aide and one of the best young men I've ever worked with, and he subscribed to this thing. And I look back and I think about those people, and when I do, I I can't help but believe that that school, that place, that, that family of teachers and aides, that there was something attacking them 
There was something that was trying to blind them to the truth of Jesus Christ and his gospel. They know the value of human beings. All right, so what does Christ do? He has authority. What does he do? First, he rebukes. So Christ rebukes this thing. The demon fears him. He did not fear the Sabbath. This demon did not fear the synagogue. This demon feared Jesus Christ. In the end, when all the games that we play are gone and we face the maker, every knee will be tasting dust and we will all be fearing the God that this demon fears. And he is, he is giving us a foretaste of what it will sound like from the lip of hell on that day of judgment. Have you come to destroy us? I know you. I know you. You are the Holy One from God. Yeah, you bet. He has come to destroy them. He has come to put an end to this particular demon's reign in this man's mind, but he's also come to put an end to demonic activity the world over. And he will someday. This rebuke will echo in and stretch over the lake of fire for all eternity. And it's only Christ who can issue this rebuke. There were rabbis in this man's day, there were scribes, there were religious leaders, there were teachers. There were men who had memorized the Old Testament word for word. None of them could do a thing for this man or anyone else who was inhabited by these creatures. But Jesus does it with a word. This Lamb of God has come to take away the sins of the world, and he has come to take away the demons who delight in sin. I love picturing, I don't think, I don't think I'm overstepping my bounds here, but I love picturing Mary Magdalene in heaven now. And if demons are afforded a look at heaven the way in Jesus's parable that man is able to look up at the one that he overlooked throughout his life if demons are allowed to look at all in heaven I love the idea of the seven demons who inhabited her looking at her in joy and peace now they never get to touch her again because Jesus Christ rebuked them out of her no one else could do that Jesus did and he wanted to, and he delighted in it because he loved her. He did what only Christ can. He rebukes them, he rebukes it, and he commands it. When I was tying my shoes this morning, um, I was thinking about what it would be to be this guy, what it would feel like to be this guy putting on your sandals that morning, knowing, I have no idea what this thing did inside him, but I don't think it was just sitting there like this man was its vacation home. I think he was doing things inside this man's mind. And, and I, I tried to imagine what it would be like to be him putting on his sandals on the morning that this thing, he didn't know it, but on the morning that this thing was going to be expelled from him forever. By a command, by a direction, by an order from Jesus Christ. If you've ever heard of somebody who has a browbeating spouse or an abusive parent, you know a little bit of what this man was dealing with. Because he didn't just share a home with somebody who abused him. He shared skin with somebody who afflicted and abused him. And Jesus Christ expels it with a word. I don't know why this guy, I thought about this. I don't know why this guy was at the synagogue. I have a hunch the demon was involved in it, that the demon wanted to interrupt Christ's ministry, and that's the only reason. But I don't know for sure. The Bible doesn't tell us. But I love the fact that Romans 8.28 is true, that God works all things together for those who love him and are called according to his purposes, which means the reason why the synagogue was open that day and that there wasn't some kind of a rainstorm that caused them to cancel services, and the reason why this guy was able to get there and didn't have a broken leg or some kind of sickness that prevented him from getting there, 
And the reason why Jesus was there that particular day at that particular time is because Jesus had ordained, God had ordained that this would happen for this man's good and for God's glory. And I love that. I love that God has that kind of authority and command over everything, over what demons choose to do. God has sovereignty over what demons choose to do. I pictured this guy, I pictured this guy in heaven a couple of times this week, if God saved him through faith. And I love the fact that his last words of spiritual biography, the last mention of him in scripture is, having done him no harm. That's the last words we have of this man about his life, that this demon did no more harm to him. This man cannot be harmed anymore by this wicked creature that had, that had done violence to him for all these years. And then lastly, on the, on the authority of Christ here, the crowds recognize it. Verse 36, they were all amazed and they said to one another, what is this word? For with authority and power, with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits and they come out. These people lived and married and ate and worshiped and worked in a world where these things were inhabiting people. I don't know if that's just because Jesus Christ was in the world and in Palestine in those days or if it was happening before and after Christ. But they lived in a world where this was going on quite a bit. Enough that Jesus interacts with multiple, multiple demon-possessed people. And they see this guy come in, this 30-something, come in from small-town Nazareth, a nowhere. To this day, we're not even 100% sure where it is because it was such a small town. This 30-something with no sanction from the Pharisees or Sadducees. There's nothing. Nobody's heard of him. He shows up, and without any gadgets, without any incense without any special, big, wordy prayers, with two sentences, he drives this thing out. And so they recognize this man, this man, not our Pharisees, not our Sadducees, not Herod. Nobody who we have seen has this kind of authority and power. A physician can treat leprosy or dropsy or excessive bleeding, but Jesus can banish disease and pain. A funeral home can help us commemorate loved ones, but Jesus can wind death back. These people, over and over through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they witness the authority of the coming king. All right, so I'm going to close with applying this. And I got a couple, two ways specifically. So I want to live knowing that there is an enemy whose defeat is certain. I want to live knowing that these things are real, that they really do detest me and my church and you, and God's gospel of Jesus Christ and the Bible, they hate us, they hate what we love, but also that their defeat is coming, that it's over, it's a done deal. So the first of those two ways that I, I would like to live in light of this, and I think most of us in this room should, is if you have young children. So our kids do not inherit the Holy Spirit from us, right? None of us are Presbyterians, I think, so we can all say all right to that. We, our kids do not inherit some kind of special spiritual uh, vitamin or, or strand within their DNA that causes them to, to know and believe in Jesus Christ from the womb. They don't. We believe that God will save our kids because they live in gospel homes where the gospel is preached and they are part of a gospel church. But they are unbelievers until they are converted, which means they are susceptible to demonic attack. And there is a prince of the power of the air, the way Ephesians describes him. Satan is real. 
and his demonic forces are real. And I believe he is also the prince of the power of high-speed internet and the prince of the power of TikTok, you excluded, and the prince of the power of YouTube ads. I have seen demonic activity. I have seen what I believe to be demonic, hellish activity aimed at young children. And we have unbelieving young children, most of us. You may have unbelieving young grandchildren. And so just like I put my kids in car seats, seems ridiculous to me. I didn't sit in a car seat. (laughs) Perfectly fine as far as I know. But we put them in car seats. They are incredibly difficult to maneuver and to install. We have to have the fire department install our car seats. And I, and I strap them in with the 37 straps, all because they're, they might, there's a small chance we might get into a car accident. And if we get into a car accident, I want them to be safe, right? So we go through all of that for the small chance that we might get into a car accident. I offer to you there's an equal chance that a demon or demons might try to infiltrate our homes through our screens, through the people we let them talk to. And I do not, I do not walk through the world like some kind of conspiracy theorist, paranoid, right? That's not the attitude of a Christian. A, a Christian has cheerful, confident joy knowing that Jesus Christ is returning and he commands everything and is ordaining everything. But a Christian also has armor, and I don't, I'm, I'm not being the father I should be, the parent I should be, if I don't act in the world like there are violent, evil creatures who hate my children. Because they are there, and they hate yours. Just like I protect them with seatbelts, I protect their bodies with the Incredibles vitamins that my wife bought at Meyer. <laughs> they are good. I, yeah, I've stolen quite a few. Um, just like we, we seek to protect their bodies from these other pathogens or dangers, we need to protect their bodies and their souls from the demonic. Um, I'll just offer this as food for thought. I've heard a lot about Disney the last couple of weeks. I've heard a lot about Disney the last few years. I do not like a lot of what I hear, and it is hard for me to believe that demonic activity is not at least somewhat involved in some of the major players in our world right now. And I don't say that as somebody who's looking for ways to to be mad at the world. I love God's world. He made it. I love people. He made them. I'm not wearing a tinfoil hat, and I'm not building a bomb shelter yet. Just kidding. I don't have the money or the space. But, But I am reading my Bible with an open set of eyes, knowing that it is not describing to me some fantasy world like Lord of the Rings. It is describing to me an actual world with an actual battle going on. And there are enemies who hate my children. The second, second application, and then I'll, I'll close it out. And this one didn't come to me until yesterday, but I think it's, it's probably fitting for a number of people. Uh, I'm not under any delusion that Satan knows my name or my address. He is not omniscient. In the book of Job, he's wandering around on the earth and God asks him, have you seen my servant Job or have you considered my servant Job? Satan is not omniscient. There are six or seven billion people on earth. I sincerely doubt he knows who I am. But I do believe that for one reason or another, I have had hell's bony finger pointed in my face for most of my life. And what it's looked like is this. The word Satan is the Hebrew word for this ancient dragon's name. 
and it means adversary or accuser. Hell runs on accusation. That's what it does. In the book of Zechariah, Satan is pictured standing in front of a high priest and saying, essentially, we don't hear his words, but something along the lines of, this guy, this filthy, dirty, sinful, wicked, flesh and bone piece of garbage, you're going to make this guy the priest? And then God comes and clothes this high priest in his own righteous, clean clothing. In the New Testament, the word is diabolos, and it means slander, slanderer. The devil is a liar. And so if any of you have lived some, much, or all of your lives, despite being a Christian, despite being washed in the blood of Jesus Christ, with a spirit that you can't quite identify, a a sense, a black cloud hanging over you that is saying, you are not enough. You are ugly inside and out, filthy. You will never measure up. That is demonic. It is from this liar who was a murderer from the beginning. It is false. And when I tell my children that this Jesus Christ has come to slay the dragon, that is one of the things that he has come to put down, is that voice. Let me close with reading you at the end of the story here. Revelation 12 is both how our world started and how our world ended or will end. Revelation 12 tells the story of the great dragon and what happens to him when all is said and done. Verses 7 through 11, I read this to my kids last night. They were hanging on every word because kids love stories where the good guy kills the dragon. You know why kids love stories where the good guy kills the dragon? Because we're in a world that's a story where the good guy kills the dragon. Here it is. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but, but, one of the most beautiful words in scripture, but he was defeated and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. Where Mary Magdalene is. And the great dragon was thrown down. That ancient serpent who is called the devil, the diabolos, the slanderer, and Satan, the accuser, the adversary. The great dragon was thrown down, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him, and his lies, and his accusations. They were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven. I'll bet you did. There is no sign in heaven saying, shh. We sing with loud voices in heaven. I heard John, the author of Revelation, heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. The authority of his Christ. The authority of his Christ. The authority of this Christ in this synagogue, in this town, Capernaum, 
First century Israel, that man and that demon saw the authority of this Christ that threw down the great dragon and threw out this demon, evicted him. They sing, the authority of Christ has come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. That is who reigns. I'm going to pray before I do. If you have never believed in this Jesus, he loves, he loves to protect us from this dragon. Repent and believe in your sins and believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Please pray with me. Father, Abba, Heavenly Father, Almighty God, righteous in heaven, making the demons tremble, sending your son born of a virgin and living a perfect sinless life that we might be forgiven of every trespass and iniquity. Heavenly Father, God of the gospel, God of saving people like this man, I bless your holy name. Please grant us to worship you faithfully and in great joy. The dragon has been beheaded. It is the lion of Judah, the lamb slain before in the foundation of the world who has done it. Praise be to God. Amen. We are Christ the King Church. For more information about our church, please visit us at ctkcincy.com.